Can wearing a hat make you go bald? And can you physically feel a vibe or someone's energy? I'm Carla Ranby, filling in for Lucy on Triple J Mornings, and Dr. Carl will answer those questions and more on this week's episode of the Science Podcast. Welcome, Carl. How are you? Good. I actually got thrilled out of my brain because I got up early in the morning and I saw a meteor storm and a comet all in one morning. Oh, my God, how lucky can you be? That's incredible. So was that this morning or yesterday? Yeah, yeah. So I got up and so about I got up at 4 o'clock. I did it the usual way, just drink too much water so that way my bladder fills and I don't have to wake my wife up with the alarm. Aren't, aren't I a considerate little boy? <laughs> You're so, so sweet. Yeah, so I snuck out of bed. Uh, at the other end, it was really bad because I then snuck into bed and she was all warm and I was freezing and immediately woke up. Anyway, so I got up and the comet, firstly the meteors, they were coming out of the northeast, fairly low on the sky, and then suddenly there was this meteor that filled one quarter of the sky and, wait for it, the trail stayed there for a whole 10 seconds. Oh, my God, I haven't seen that before. It just hung in the sky as though somebody had put a text to colour, a bright fluoro marker in the sky and it just slowly faded away. And that was really exciting. And then I went looking for the comet. And if you, if you the Janelle Well from ABC Science has written a fantastic article on the ABC News homepage about the comet. So follow that. And you can follow the people like Dylan O'Donnell and Jonty Horner. She's an astronomer. But basically, you look to the northeast and you don't see anything with the naked eye and then you get out your binoculars and you go scanning you find Jupiter up there and Jupiter and Saturn and you follow them down in a straight line and down near the bottom through the binoculars you'll see this little grey fuzzy green fuzzy blob and if you've got if you've got a camera and a tripod you can make it look really good but with the naked eye it just looks like a green fuzzy blob and for me it was absolutely amazing it wasn't as good as Comet McNaught which came around 15 years ago, and you could go up to, uh, say, Watson's Bay east of Sydney, then look back across Sydney and you could see the Sydney Harbour Bridge all the way across to Railway Square, and you could see in the sunset this sword hanging in the sky as long as Sydney, and that was yeah. a comet. Oh, God, it wasn't as good as that, but I knew that if I got close it was that good. So follow the article from Janelle Wells on the ABC News homepage and then go down a pathway. You'll, it'll be a real thrill if you've got some binoculars. So it's funny because I was thinking about getting up early yesterday to see it um, and I didn't because I read somewhere that uh, you probably wouldn't have been able to see it with the naked eye but then my mate Serge from Hack said it was really bright and very much visible. With a naked eye? Apparently. He, he must be in a darker place than I, because I, I couldn't see it with a naked eye, but I could see it with binoculars, but maybe he was in a darker place. Dark counts for a lot. Read the article by Janelle Wells. It tells you all you need to know. Okay. And Dr. Carl, I've heard that you're a bit of a cover boy this week, that you're on the front page of a magazine. What? I had <laughs> yeah. no idea. Tell me more. Um, shout out to Bailey from the Sunshine Coast. He says, does Carl know that he's on the front page of the magazine that I deliver this week? It's called My Weekly Preview. And you're looking very sharp with your robot robot shirt oh, on. <laughs> look, I had no idea, but look, thank you very much. Uh, I th from memory, that was not an article I wrote, but rather an interview. So it might be a bit disconnected because English as she is spoke is different from English as she is written. Now, how was your week this morning today, Dr. Carly? Oh, mine's been good. Yeah, I'm ready, ready to go, ready to jump into all of these science questions. Okay, you're looking audience. sharp in another another great shirt today, and we're going to start <laughs> taking some uh, science questions from Lockie in Coburg. Hey, Lockie, what's your question? Hey, Dr. Carl, Dr. Carla. Uh, thanks for having me on. 
Um, I wanted to get away from all the kind of doom and gloom of COVID-19, so I thought I'd ask about something we can all enjoy, which is Game of Thrones characters being killed off. Um, of course. So spoiler alert. Yes, yeah, we all enjoy it. Um, I've always wondered about the fight scene with uh, the mountain versus the viper. Great fight scene. Oh, um, the mountain... It is, it is. Um, so he basically cracks open the viper's skull with his bare hands. And I was just wondering if that was physically possible for a normal human being to do it. Okay, so by the mountain, you mean a human being who is called the mountain because he's such a big bloke, is that correct? Yes, sorry, should have uh, clarified yeah, and that. And the viper is not a snake, but a person, a human who's called the viper for various reasons. Correct again, yes. Okay, right. Now, firstly, I would have thought... Oh, I don't know, but then in the paper yesterday, did you see the photo of the mountain? I've heard he's been in the news lately. I didn't see it yesterday, though. Okay, he now holds the world record for a deadlift. So there's a barbell on the ground in front of you, and there's a couple of weights on the end of it. When I say a couple, I mean a couple, a lot of couples. And then with your bare hands, you bend down, you, and, and then you grab hold of the bar, and then using your thighs... You lift it up, and he holds a world record, wait for it, at over half a tonne. 501 kilograms. That means that each hand is supporting a quarter of a tonne. Mate, I don't think I can hold a quarter of a hand a tonne with my hands. I was carrying a frame the other day, which was I thought was really heavy. It was only 25 kilograms, and I was feeling sore by the end of it. He was holding 10 times as much, and his thighs, they are the diameter of a normal human being's waist, right? He's, he's got enormous thighs. And as an aside, that means because he's got the big thighs, he can probably jump higher than anybody else from a standing start. So not not like the proper professional high jumpers, but just standing there and you bend down and you jump up. Bodybuilders, the, the guys who do the heavy lifting with enormous size, they can laugh, jump higher than anybody else. So number one, I would not have thought it was possible to crack open a skull with your bare hands. But number two, he holds a world record and he can lift half a tonne. Oh, my God. So definitely I don't know, but it's not impossible. How about that? I love it. Good to hear. Big record as well. Big guy. <laughs> huge guy. Huge. Huge, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for your question, Lockie. And our next question comes from Ballarat. Josh, you're twitching. What's your question? Uh, my question for you... Oh, g'day, doctors. How's it going? First. Very good, Dr. Josh. Um, my question for you is, is, how come every night before I fall into a deep sleep do I let off a twitch? Does a twitch... Uh, occupy, happen in your upper limbs, your or your lower limbs, or your whole body? Uh, more around my chest. Like I, I right. Okay. Now we think that this is left over from the Moro reflex, M O R O, which goes back yep. to when we were living in the trees, right? So, seven million years ago, the line in evolution that led to humans split off from the line that led to today's chimpanzees. So from 7 million years ago to five, to 2 million years ago, that's a 5 million year window, our ancestors lived in the trees and then 2 million years ago they came down and started walking and they developed buttocks and all that sort of stuff. Now, the, there's a reflex that babies have that adults do not normally have which goes back to when we lived in the trees. And what you do is you grab a baby, a newborn baby, you know, like about two or three hours old, which is what I used to do as part of my working in the kids' hospital, and you hold the baby uh, on your forearm. So you cradle the tiny baby's skull in the palm of your hand 
and the tiny yep. baby's feet are just sort of resting up against your bicep muscle. It's just lying on your forearm, right? And then you drop the baby about one centimetre. Not, not very yep. far, right? <laughs> you just drop the baby one centimetre and if the baby is wired up correctly from a neurological point of view, what will happen is the arms will suddenly go out and then slowly come in. And the legs will suddenly go out and slowly come in and you go tick, morrow reflex. And we think that that was left over from when we were living in the trees for that 7 million to 2 million year period in the past. And if you fall during while you're asleep, obviously you sort of reach out in all directions and maybe you'll grab onto something. So you've got that reflex just a little bit stronger than the rest of us because yep. you're more in touch with your basic reality, man. Yep. So we think that's it's what it kind is. Of makes it hard, kind of makes it hard watching the movie with the partner and I'll try and sneakily fall asleep. And as soon as I close my eyes, I'll let her for twitch and she turns around and looks at me. Like, ah, what are you doing? Oh, <laughs> so she knows that you've fallen asleep. You can't sneak away. My daughter does that yeah. to my wife by kicking her, waking, waking her up when she falls asleep. Thanks for your question, Josh. <laughs> thank no, you, Dr. Thank you. Josh. We're going to jump right back into it with Jess from Canberra. Jess, what's your question? Good morning, doctors. Dr. Dr. Tower, Dr. Tower. Hi. Um, I'm wondering about the phenomenon of snoring. So, I, like, everyone that I know that snores seems to have no idea that they're snoring. And I, I just don't know, like, is there noise counselling going on in their brains or, like, what's going on there that stops them from being aware of it? Ah, now... I don't know the answer, but let me give you a bit of a hint towards an answer. Firstly, when you're asleep, it's not as though you're asleep. It's rather that your consciousness, Dr. Jess, has gone somewhere else and there's somebody else in control. 16 hours a day, Dr. Jess awake is in charge. But for eight hours of the day, there's a different person in charge and that's Dr. Jess asleep. And you and that other person who both live inside the same brain, inside the same skull, you never meet. So that's a bit of a philosophical background. Now, secondly, why do you not wake up to the snoring when you do wake up to sudden noise like a car door or a voice or a killer dinosaur coming at you? And I think it's because the other Dr. Jess has decided that's not a threat. It's not a threat, and so you won't get brought back. Now, that's the best answer I've got, and we probably need a sleep scientist to take us any deeper. But I've often wondered why we don't wake up from our own snoring. So what's the magic number, Dr. that people should ring okay. to if, if we've got a sleep scientist? Yeah, if you want to text in 0439 757 or give us a call 1300 Dr. Carl, does the same thing, I guess, apply to sleep talking? Yes. Um, when you're sleep talking and sleep walking, that's a different person who's in charge and you can actually get blamed for it. So I've heard of cases of where you've said something in your sleep or you've dreamed something and the other person, when you wake up and you tell them that, they say, how can you be so disloyal to me? So there's this complicated mix because there's this other person involved. We don't have the full answer, but a sleep doctor would have the answer. All right, thank you so much for your question, Jess. And we'll head now to Thomastown. Uh, Zach, you've got our next question. What is it? Good day, doctors. Dr. Zach, welcome. Um, I also twitch when I fall asleep. It drives my wife mental. Yeah, look, I don't know how to get out of it. The technical term for it is a hypnogogic 
Jerk, H-Y-P-N-O-G-O-G-I-C, Jerk. And I've been looking every now and then to see if there's a way of conditioning yourself out of it, you know, the Pavlovian dog thing, what they call behavioural, ther- cognitive behavioural therapy, but I haven't come across anything. It is annoying. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. And Zach, your question a- was about your nose running when you're running, right? Yeah, every time I go for a run, about 15 minutes into it, doesn't matter, matter what weather, my nose will start running. Ah, it's, it's not... Okay, so it's not more frequent in the colder weather? No. Or hotter weather? No, okay. So I don't have a good answer to that, but I've thought about this one myself because it happens to me. The technical term for your nose running is rhinitis, like rhino, rhinoceros, R-H-I-N-I-T-I-S, and you can have all sorts of rhinitis. You can have inflammatory rhinitis when there's a battle going on in your nose between your immune system and some invaders and there's all this liquid and stuff floating around. Or you can have gustatory rhinitis, gustatory, referring to the gut. So you're eating a meal and when you get to a certain stage, it doesn't have to be spicy, your nose starts to run. And then you can have exercise rhinitis. And the best explanation I've found, which I don't like, is that you're just simply moving a lot of air in. Now, the air contains water vapour. Normally, at rest, you will shift five litres of air in and out of your lungs every minute. But when you're running, you can get up to 40 or 50 or 60 and it contains a lot of water vapour. That air has to be air-conditioned by the time it hits the back of your throat. So it has to be brought up to 37 degrees C and 100% humidity. So what you're doing is you're breathing out this air that's 100% humid and 37 degrees C and it's coming out through your mouth and nose and then maybe this is the kind of weak theory that it cools down and it, you know, down to the air temperature and then it drops its water vapour. It's supposedly more frequent, more common in colder weather because the air can hold a lot of water when it's warm and less when it's cold and even less when it's really cold, but you're saying it doesn't seem to make much difference. So I don't have a good answer for you, Dr. Zach, uh, but if somebody has got an answer, please text in and we'd love to know more to understand this question. Thank you, Dr. Zach. Yeah, give us a text, 0439 uh, Dr. Carl, it's been a really special week for Skywatchers. We were just talking earlier about uh, the comet that everyone's been checking out that you saw, um, and Donna from Darwin has called in and you saw something pretty special last night too. What was it? Hi, Dr. Donna. Hey, Welcome. How are you going? Good. And your question or your comment, Dr. Donna? Yeah, so Hubby and I were cooking dinner last night and I looked up in the sky and the moon had this awesome rainbow ring around it. So I'm wondering what that's called and why does it happen? Uh, was it coloured or was it just a white ring? It was um, coloured. Yeah, colours of the rainbow. Wow, you can actually see the colours. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh, that's right. It's coming to a full moon, so there's a lot of light. Okay. Now, here's the standard meteorological weather person explanation. And here it comes. Hexagonal. In other words, it's got six sides. Here we go. Hexagonal longitudinal ice crystals. 
So floating up there way up high in the sky at, I don't know, 30, 40, 50,000 feet. I'm sorry that they measure height in feet, but that's what they measure it in. At least it's not in cubic furlongs per square second or something. Anyway, high, yeah. high up there in the atmosphere, there are these hexagonal ice crystals scattered in a band across the whole sky. And some of them go, some of the light rays from the moon, so the sun shines onto the moon, it reflects it, and the light rays go off to the side, not to your eyeball directly, but off to the side, and they run into these hexagonal high-altitude ice crystals, and they get bent and they come down. Normally, you just see white light but to, to see this white ring. But you, because the moon was so bright and maybe you're in a dark area, you're lucky to see the full colours, and I'm so gentle. So if you want to find out more about it, uh, Deborah Bird, B-Y-R-D, runs a website yep. called Earth and Sky, and she talks about the moon bow, and she's got pictures and little diagrams to show you how it happens. But also I reckon Wikipedia would have something on it, and I'm so jealous you got to see it. You're so lucky. Yeah, it was awesome. Like, I've never seen anything like that before, so... Um, yeah, it was great. Oh, uh, some people are lucky. So good. I wish I got up early. I wish I stayed up. I wish I'm seeing all these beautiful things <laughs> lighting up the sky. Um, thank you for your call, Donna. And our next question, look, I can really vibe with. Trotter from Torquay, what's up? Hey, guys. I just want to know if you can actually feel a vibe. So my wife and I were talking about it, and she thinks she can feel dark energy from people. Um. And I want to know if you turn off all five senses and you uh, can you tell the difference if you were in a funeral or if you were at a rave? Is there an energy Ooh. that you can feel? I love Apparently this Apparently not. Yeah. So, look, on one hand, there are some people who are really good at reading other people and it's yep. roughly somewhere between, it's down around the one in a thousand. And these are the people uh, who can tell when another person, for example, is lying. Um, Elizabeth Loftus, L-O-F-T-U-S, has written about this. She's the person who deals with repressed memories and lies and all that other sort of stuff. Loftus, L-O-F-T-U-S, look her up. And she's found that roughly one in every thousand people is what they call a wizard or a magician. And they are often employed in the law enforcement services and they don't know what they're doing, but they just know that you're telling a lie and they're right. So maybe your wife has part of that and perhaps a new potential career. But And the other part is, can you pick the vibe, for example, that you're at a party and you know that somebody is staring you in the back and you turn around and they're staring at you? No, because I've done that experiment so many times and you can't pick up the vibe that somebody is staring at you. And if you're at a funeral and you were totally blocked off from the world, you know, funeral or a rave party, and you could pick up absolutely nothing, I'm fairly confident that you'd pick up absolutely nothing. Mind you, if you are that person who has psychic powers, the American skeptics have a standing prize of $1 million if you can prove it. So, you yeah, know, no, if you I'm reckon you that. got it, go for it. Yeah, $1 million is nice. All right, thanks for your so. question. Yeah. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> Jock from Ballarat. You've got a great science question. What is it? Um, g'day, doctors. So I was wondering if wearing a hat aids in going bald. It's possible under very, very unusual circumstances, but almost certainly not in general. So we have found with African-American women who wear their tie, their hair 
pulled back very tight in tight braids since they were young, they can have a type of baldness called alopecia. Now, alopecia literally from the Greek means fox, alopex, and so alopecia is a Greek word meaning fox mange. And so for whatever reason, foxes in the past, and maybe now, would have areas on their body where they had no hair. So the African-American women who have their hair pulled tight until, you know, from when they were kids, they can suffer traction alopecia. So wearing a hat could theoretically make you go bald if the hat was sort of pulled really tight on your head and there was a lot of tension and you did that every day for years, every day of the year since you were five years old and then by the time you get into your 20s and 30s you'd start to go bald. But just chucking a hat on your head and it's a little bit tight for a few hours but not 24 hours a day even while you're asleep, the chances of of that causing baldness, almost certainly not. It's probably related to hormones because as you get older in a male, both the receptors on the hair follicle change and the different types of testosterone change. There is a guaranteed 100% cure or prevention for not going bald as a male, which is castration before puberty. In general, I don't recommend it. Thanks for your question. I don't really want to get castrated. (laughs) Fair enough. Our next uh, science question this morning comes from Alex in Burnella. What's up? Hey, Dr. Carm. Just wondering what characteristics allow some Australian flora species to regenerate after it's been impacted by fire. Ah, 60,000 years of evolution is the answer. So the Indigenous people here in Australia now, they got here 60,000 years ago. Now, for about 45,000 of those years, it was a very different Australia. There was an ice age gripping the planet... The ice was three kilometres thick over Toronto. There was ice up and down the Great Dividing Range and the water levels in the ocean were about 125 125 metres lower. And so there was a very different makeup of the vegetation on the land. But during that time, the Indigenous people were modifying the trees with their recurrent burning, you know, the landscape of the trees and the grasslands. And then we came out of the Ice Age about 15 or so thousand years ago and they still kept it going. So they modified the landscape so it was kind of like a buffet bar. So they could just either stay in one place, which most of them did, and they had cities of up to thousands of people, or some of them were nomadic, but whatever they, whatever sort of Indigenous person they were... The countryside was just like this buffet bar and there were areas where there was this sort of tree and that sort of grassland and at different times of the year you'd eat the food, the berries, the the plants, the insects, the animals, whatever. And this all changed 200 years ago when the, uh, 250 years ago, when the colonialists came and stopped the Indigenous people from burning. So what we've got is a 60,000-year history of the vegetation evolving to burn really well with a low flame. So we've got these incredibly flammable trees, like the eucalypts, and if you just sort of go around and you burn it here and you burn it there and you just do a little bit and you know what you're doing because somebody is teaching you and you've got a long history of it, you can burn away and the countryside is fine and you're getting all the food that you want. But if you stop the burning and suddenly you get this tremendous growth of this very flammable material, then we have what happened last year, the terrible bushfires. So it was the evolution 
of the trees, which was directed by the Indigenous people and then stopped, that led us into this situation. That was part of the reason why we had the big bushfires. So they probably modified the trees so that the ones that were more flammable would be the ones that would grow the best. Does that kind of make sense, Dr Alex? Yeah, that's great, Dr Carl. Thanks very much for that. Thanks, Alex. Thank All right, we are taking your science questions this morning, one three hundred o triple five three six. If you've got a good one, call me in. And we are up next with per- uh, Ben from Perth. Sorry, uh, you've got a question about asteroids. Uh, yes, I do. Thanks for taking the call. Um, Dr Carl, if we were able to detect the A-killer asteroid heading towards the planet with plenty of time and we decided to set our uh, nuclear weapons out there and, and try to blow the thing up before it got here, my understanding is most of the destructive power from a, an atomic blast is from the superheat, superheated air expanding out and uh, flattening everything in its path. Would that work on an asteroid where there is no atmosphere? Well, the thing is we don't know. Um, firstly, you are right to talk about the asteroids being a bit of a threat. They are a bit of a threat. By the way, I've recently realised that supervolcanoes are a bigger threat. But let's not talk about that. Let's just stick to the asteroids. So we don't know the best way to deflect an asteroid. And um, they're coming past all the time. And a few years ago, there was an asteroid that was big enough to have wiped out maybe 10 to 50% of the world's population. And did we have three years warning when we could have done something? No, we had three weeks. So at the moment, NASA is actually setting up to impact an asteroid this year. Look up DART, D-A-R-T, two, and they're going to slam a spacecraft into an asteroid to see what happens. And they're going to then very carefully measure what happens to that asteroid. Will it deflect a lot or a little bit? And uh, and how will its speed change? How do we find out? By doing it, because we've never done this before. And is a better way for us to do a gentle landing on the spacecraft uh, of the spacecraft on the asteroid and then fire the engines to push rather than just a single impact? And with a nuclear weapon, is it better to dig a hole and then bury it so you get some of the force contained or just explode on the surface or part of the way from the surface, we do not know. Now, we have to become a space-going race, and this is part of it, but we don't have the, the best answer to your question, and that's why they're doing the DART project. So keep an eye on it, Dr Ben, D-A-R-2. I've forgotten what it stands for, and that'll have the answer for you. Uh, beauty. Okay, thanks for that. Thanks for your call, Ben. Um, and we're checking in next with Renee. Uh, you've got our next science question. Take it away. Good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my question. I was just wondering uh, why, if being cold doesn't give us a cold, why are colds and flu so prevalent in winter? The answer is, according to all of the best infectious diseases officers around, we do not know. We know that's the case. You're dead right. It does happen. And there's all sorts of causes that are put forward, like we all tend to hang indoors, we're closer to each other in cold weather. But when you try and factor it all the way down, we don't really know. There are some viruses that do better at colder temperatures and some that are hotter temperatures, but we do not yet have the full definitive answer as to why they are more common in winter. It seems to be a ridiculously simple question but we don't have a nice, easy answer. Sorry, Dr. Renee. Just sorry. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to bet with my husband. 
Hooray! You deserve it. And so I'm looking forward to your husband now being in charge of cleaning the bathroom and loading the dishwasher for the next 12 months. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks so much, Renee. And Ruth, you're next up from Armadale. What's up? Good morning. Good morning, morning. Dr. Ruth. Yes. How can we have a solstice three weeks into a season? Ah, okay. So um, we'll just do a bit of a background there. So the solstice is when you've got the maximum hours of sunlight or, or nighttime in your particular area. And so we have a winter solstice and a summer solstice. And I think the for us on our side of the equator, it's around December 20-something for the summer solstice. Yeah. Yep. And then the winter solstice is six months earlier. So how come June, it's yep. part of, yep, 21 June, right? And by the way, I deliberately got married on that day. Really? Yeah, yeah. So... Oh. Um, yeah, so I, I rang my wife up and I said, Hi, honey, I'm in a cheap hotel room in Southeast Asia injecting opiates into this young red-headed woman and I, I'm, I'm injecting it into the buttocks, but I don't know why. I think that's the wrong thing to do. And where should I inject it and will you marry me? And eventually she said yes. That was my wedding proposal over the phone from India. Anyway, why so am we I got not married. surprised? <laughs> I love that. That's so Dr. Carl. <laughs> yeah, and then so we, we end up choosing to get married on the summer solstice in Norway. So we flew Sydney to Singapore to London to Oslo to Tromsø. Uh, no, no, to, um, uh, no, it's further north than Tromsø. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, and we, we got married on the longest day of the year when the sun didn't set. So that would be a metaphor for our marriage. And we did it inside the Arctic Circle so the sun wouldn't set all day. And so in the same way, the love would never set on our marriage. So, so, oh, that's a lovely sentiment. Lovely sentiment. Yeah. So, Doctor, Doctor. But so, why? To answer your question. Yeah, okay, to answer your question, um, the solstice happens depending on hard science and astronomy. The seasons, mate, that's just crazy humans giving them names. So uh, in some parts of the world we have four seasons, in some parts of the world we have two seasons, like the wet and the dry, and in some parts of the world we have six seasons and the Indigenous people had more depending on where you are in Australia. It's just a crazy human construct. I'm with you, we should have named it at the beginning of the day of the solstice. You, you're right and the past history is wrong. When I was young, I am sure the seasons were a month earlier and somebody has changed them. That's called global warming, which was recognised and proved <laughs> back in 1989. Hey, Carl, I saw a really great text from Talithia in Canberra um, asking if it's going to be possible, if it's ever possible to build a tunnel or another way to connect Australia to New Zealand or Tasmania. Yes, just remember the motto of the United States Air Force. With enough energy, a pig will fly. So if you put the money into it, you can build a tunnel from anywhere to anywhere and the transit time from anywhere to anywhere is 38 minutes. So if you build a tunnel from, say, Launceston to Sydney to London to Auckland to Vladivostok, anywhere to anywhere... It's always 38 minutes. Okay. Um, well, let's get back into some calls right now. Julian has a great one about music that I really liked. What's up, Julian? Uh, hi, Doctor. Um, I would like to know why sad songs and upbeat songs have such an emotional effect on our brain. 
you can get the answer from an example with smell. Every living creature has a sense of smell to detect chemicals in the background of the environment that might be good to eat or a warning that they might try to kill you. And so smell is wired into your primeval brain and you might go into a shop and then suddenly smell a Madeline cake like your aunt used to make in that little village and suddenly you're in the shop but instead you imagine yourself, you can see the whole village where your aunt grew up sort of rising like a film set around you and so it's wired into your primitive brain. In the same way, we think that music was essential for humans to develop language. So we just start off with a little rhythm. And then we, we sort of get together and that'd be sort of like, I'm, I'm clapping my hands, you're clapping my hands, we're part of the same family. So we think music was part of the process of us developing language and so it's been in our psyche for millions of years and it has a lot of power. There are some African languages which have the same word for music and dance. If you're hearing music, you're dancing. It's automatic. You do not sit there for music. And if you're dancing, it's because there's some music. So it's... It's sort of part of your primeval brain. I don't have a better explanation than that. You'd need an evolutionary biologist or a musicologist to take you further. All right. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Dr. Julian. I reckon we can squeeze in another. Um, Gerald from Griffith, uh, you've got a question about toast, and I tell you what, I've been eating so much of this in isolation. <laughs> I want to hear about it. Yeah. What's Hi, up, Dr. Gerald? Carl, Dr. Yeah. yeah, lay it on us, Dr. Gerald. Yep. Go Hi, ahead. You're live you to air. Um, so I've got a question about toast. We eat a lot of toast in my house and we seem to throw out a lot of bread when it goes mouldy. So can you toast mouldy bread and for how long would you have to do it to kill all the mould? And can you even spread Vegemite on it just to make sure the mould's extra dead so you can actually fit for human consumption again? Moulds can be incredibly tough and I'd be very wary of dealing with them. If you've got a food that is not porous like cheese, you're fairly safe. You've got a block of cheese, it's 90% fat, and you can see the mould over here. So you cut off the mould with a safe margin of a couple of centimetres, and, of course, you feed the mouldy cheese because compost can do everything, and you're pretty safe that none of the mould has penetrated through the cheese because it's just this big, fat blob of fat. But bread... The trouble is that the mould can penetrate through the open pores in the bread and make its way quite a distance away from where you see the mould. So the mould is over there, and so you eat this bit of bread over a different place, and yet it's got some fungus in it. And some of them can be very devastating in tiny, tiny doses. So I'd be very, very wary about eating any mouldy bread. Just toss it is safest. But uh, going back to the American Air Force, if you've got enough money, you can make pig fly. Could you cook toast if you had a super-duper oven and cook it until it's safe to eat or no? You'd, you'd have to get it above 120 degrees C to be sure of destroying any spores which might open up inside you. Unfortunately, I know a woman who got a mould in her lungs and died. Um, and so oh. I've been very wary of mucking around with them. Right. Well, well, thank you very much for your time and uh, thanks for answering that question. My wife will be happy to hear that. All right. Thank you so thank much, you. Gerald. And that about brings us to the end of the Science Hour. Thank you for hanging out with us today, Dr Carl. 
Oh, the Carl and Carla show. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. You know I love it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. If you like this episode, please leave a review and subscribe.